So our theme for this year, as you can see on the front of your bulletins, has been drawn from the book of Joshua, where Joshua asks the children of Israel to make a decision who they're going to follow, either the gods in the lands from which they came and the gods that are uh, worshipped in the lands of the people that they're dispossessing, or whether or not they're going to serve Yahweh, the true God of heaven. And Joshua makes that famous declaration that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'd like for us to return to that theme in our lesson this morning with the idea of as for me and for my house and that applying to any house and every house. One of the things that impresses me so much about Jesus and the the preaching that he did and the people that he interacted with is something that carries over into the book of Acts that we've been studying and the epistles that are written as well. And that is how Jesus seems to key in on people and the Gospels focus on people and even the book of Acts and the other epistles focus on people who are not necessarily the most obvious, prominent people you would think of. Even in a crowd where you have religious leaders and religious teachers or perhaps as we've seen or we will see in the book of Acts and then you uh, get into the epistles and their potential audiences there where you might have prominent officials of this kind or that. Jesus and those that would teach in his name seem to point out the people who are less obvious and praise them for what they do. In Mark chapter 12, you're familiar with the account of the widow with her two coins. You have all those people around giving huge amounts of money into the treasury. And Jesus points out that woman. You think about Jesus in Palestine when he points out the centurion and says he has more faith than anybody in all the land. That centurion to the Jews was a nobody. But Jesus had a way of elevating those lesser individuals while humbling those who would expect to receive the accolades and the praise and the glory for what they did. Those who humbly had faith. Those were the ones pointed to as exemplary. I want to talk with you about a couple of people like that this morning. You know their names because we've been talking about them occasionally in our Wednesday evening class from the book of Acts. They may appear to be lesser characters, but they are quite impressive in what they accomplish for the Lord. They are the great husband and wife team that we mentioned this morning, Aquila and Priscilla. You find them in Acts chapter 18 if you'd like to be turning there. And normally I've got slides up on the board for you and things like that, but we're pretty much going to be camping down in Acts for the majority of our lesson with just a couple of exceptions. Acts chapter 18, we are introduced to them, and that's where I would like for us to begin our study for this morning as we study this idea of ask for me and for my house and that going for any house and every house. In Acts chapter 18, verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens And came to Corinth. And he found there a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. We're going to come back to this text and work with more within it, but I, I want to make some observations by way of background to get us started. Um, 
It is not a typical thing in the Bible to find a record of a husband and wife team serving the Lord. You do have a number of pairs in the Old Testament that I'm sure you can think of. You can think of, you know, Abraham and Sarah, that kind of thing. But there aren't many in the New Testament. We have Jesus who's single all his life. We have Paul who, as he says, has a right to bring along a believing wife, but didn't do so. There is Peter, who had a wife, because he had a mother-in-law, but we never know anything about her, except for that her mother had been ill once, and Jesus had healed her. We don't see a lot of husband and wife teams in the Bible. You see teaching teams and preaching teams. You've got Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. You've got Timothy in there, all of his fellow workers, that whole squad. But Aquila and Priscilla are a pretty unusual combination. They're rare. They're unique. And the Bible seems to indicate that this is the case by the way that they are mentioned. They're mentioned only six times in the entire New Testament. But in all six of those cases, they're always mentioned together. There's not one time that you find one without the other. They're always a pair, which would seem to say something about them. When people will refer to you as a couple... And they can never seem to mention one without the other. That's usually a pretty strong marriage. It's not to say your marriage isn't as strong if you're not mentioned that way all the time as you think back and try to remember. But when people always seem to think of you as a pair, as two halves of a whole, that's a good thing. Something else that's interesting about this this husband and wife team of Aquila and Priscilla is that two of the six times they're mentioned, Aquila who, if you're just hearing their names for perhaps the first time, is the male in the relationship, two of those six times, he's mentioned first. In four of those six cases, Priscilla is mentioned first. In our culture, we have a a tendency to mention men first and then the women, and that partly goes back to our background with the woman taking the man's name in a marriage. Um, I remember when, when Crystal and I got married, Um, I wanted it to be Brandon and Crystal Trout. She wanted it Mr. and Mrs. Brandon Trout, which I felt kind of, you know, know, what about the wife? She she played a pretty critical part in all of this, too. But she liked that traditional approach. And that's some that may have been what was said at at your wedding as well. Um, But that idea of the woman taking the man's name. And so oftentimes the man is mentioned first. Now, I don't know how it is amongst you ladies where you likely know the wife better than you know the husband. So maybe you mention her first when you're speaking of them. But culturally, you understand where I'm, where I'm referring to. All of what may be true of our society was particularly true in theirs, in Jewish culture. Um, the wife is supposed to be treated with honor and respect because she's the helpmeet that God has created her to be. But the wife was often a secondary figure in that relationship. So for us to find Priscilla and Aquila... Mentioned four out of the six times may very well be something of a subtle comment on just how incredibly important in the work of these two Priscilla was. They also are tied, we mentioned this, to to one of the few verses in the Bible where you can kind of absolutely nail down what occurs to a specific year. We mentioned this in our Acts class. Uh, We have to guess about a lot of dates and we try to make educated guesses But in chapter 18, verse 2, when it tells us they had to leave Rome because Claudius commanded the Jews to leave, that allows us to narrow things down to right around A.D. 50, A.D. 51, just by the by. So for the next couple of minutes, what I want us to do is is consider three particular things that we read about Aquila and Priscilla that I think will be helpful for us, three observations about them. Um, I want to talk about some of the work that they did for a living um, and what they did as Christians in that. I want to talk with you 
about some of the more public aspects of their, their teaching and, and preaching to other people, and then I want to talk about some of the more personal aspects of that as well. So as to the work that they did um, to provide for themselves, the text tells us, of course, they're tent makers. A lot of folks that would dwell in that kind of nomadic sort of, of uh, domicile, and Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers. That might have been a trade that they learned from their families the same way Paul had. Um, and even though Paul is preaching the gospel, occasionally he resorts to supporting himself by making tents. So you imagine for a moment how Paul must have felt when he goes into the city where he knows essentially nobody, and he meets Aquila and Priscilla, two people with whom he shares a great, great deal in common. Um, the text doesn't tell us this at the very beginning, but we, we know that they're Christians, or they, at least they certainly will be by the end of this chapter. Um, secondly, not only are they Christians, they're Jewish Christians. And then thirdly, they, they share this common trade, and as we'll see, a common devotion to the cause of Christ. So you imagine the comfort that this is for Paul to move into this city, or to come into this city and find Christians like this. To come into an otherwise hostile environment, an otherwise worldly environment, and find people like Priscilla and Aquila. There are not too many places where Paul visits in which he has as rapid a seeming reaction of, I'm not going to be able to stay here very long. There aren't many instances that we don't read of in the book of Acts where God has to speak to him in the middle of the night and say, do not be silent, do not be afraid, continue on preaching as he does in verse 9. Paul has cause to be afraid at Corinth. It's a hostile place for him. Um, he's certainly not comfortable with the philosophies that he's encountering there, uh, nor the people who are there. And he's not only got cause to worry for his safety... Perhaps he's coming to think it's time for me to go ahead and move on. But God says, do not be afraid. Go on speaking about me. There are more people in this city that will follow what you teach. And it's in that kind of environment that Paul finds a couple who will remain close to him all throughout his life. And it is in part this tent making that brings them together. Um, and that makes me want to say something that's kind of... Um, uh, you know, personal about all this. Here is this case of a couple whose, whose, whose secular work, whose career choice, whose vocation is, in fact, the prime source of, of ministry in regards to their relationship with Paul. They use their job to help them do the work of the Lord. May I suggest to you that you and I need to see our jobs, whatever your job may be, exactly the same way. Not as, as something that takes up too much of your time and hinders you from being able to, to spread the word of the Lord. Not as a hindrance to what God wants you to do. But as in fact opportunities that God is giving you to do what he's called on you to do. It is for you as it often is not for, for a, a full time evangelist that in your workplace you get to meet a lot of people. And maybe not now with everyone working from home while this uh, pandemic runs its course. But you have throughout the course of your, of your week, for most of you I'm assuming, the opportunity to run into a lot of different people. And to spend time with many folks who very likely are not Christians. One of the first persons I ever helped bring to the Lord I met while working at Chick-fil-A. 
And we're both working there. We both become good friends. She heard from me of my faith. Um, and through that and through the, the teaching efforts of a friend of mine and what God was doing through both our efforts, she became a Christian. And to my knowledge, is faithful to this day. So you might think about how many of the people that you work with are disciples of Jesus Christ already? I suspect most of you would say not very many, maybe none. So rather than seeing our jobs in in the light of being a a hindrance to our opportunities and taking up so much of my time, and if I didn't have to do this, boy, I could really serve the Lord more. May I suggest that you follow the example of Aquila and Priscilla, who are very effective in the work that they're doing. They don't leave their trade, but God comes first. And they serve him all their lives in any which way that they possibly can. There are times in the Bible where God will take someone and say, I want you to leave your plow, leave your family, and go and do the work that I have for you to do. There are John the Baptists. There are Amoses who who give up their work and go preach the word. But there are many, many, many more Aquilas and Priscillas who are effective servants of the Lord right where they are, in their workplace, where they live, where they grew up, what have you. And that's what most Christians have got to become. To see their jobs, not as a challenge to overcome so that they can go do the Lord's work, but the very place where God can use them to be an influence for God right where they are. I have a a couple of of folks that I I, I know of. I don't really know them quite well, so I don't know if I could call them friends, but but, uh, a brother and sister in Christ, um, husband and wife, they've just moved, I believe, to Sierra Leone. Uh, or somewhere, I think, over in Africa, um, to preach there. That's, that's what they've, they've wanted to do. They've wanted to go overseas, work in one of those communities that, for whatever reason, they have a connection to, and they could do it, so they wanted to do it. They've left everything in the States behind with the blessing uh, of, their, of their family to, to go and teach the gospel there. That they're doing that? Fantastic. But I know for a fact you've got lost souls right where you work. You don't have to go to a foreign field to find someone who needs to hear the gospel. You can just go to work. And they're right there. Now, I understand that perhaps your work may have some some, uh, PR restrictions about how you're supposed to talk and different things. And it's been a little while since I had a, a, a secular kind of corporate sort of job, so I'm not sure exactly how all those regulations go these days. So, but I know some of that can get in the way. And if you're not careful, sometimes perhaps you can get in trouble. But I also know that you understand when that, you can usually tell when that sort of conversation is welcome or not. You've got so many opportunities to teach people who need to hear the gospel right where you go uh, five, six days a week. Paul says in Ephesians 6 and verse 5 and 6, Servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Even those servants, those slaves in the first century, had the opportunity to use their slavery as a tool to encounter people and expose them to the gospel of Jesus. So contrary to seemingly popular belief, work is not a part of the curse placed on us as a result of sin. So Adam and Eve were given work to do before they ever sinned in the garden. 
There's certainly been toil and tribulation and thorns and thistles that has entered into our work because of all of that. But work itself is what God intended for us to do. Um, I suspect all of you ultimately do, but um, appreciate the jobs that you have, especially during a year like this one. But perhaps sometimes we need to be reminded as another weekend is almost over and Monday's coming our way to thank God for the jobs he's given us and not just for the opportunity to provide for our families in such a tumultuous time as this year has been, but also thanking him for the opportunity to be a workman for the Lord, even in that job. Then secondly, coming back to Acts chapter 18 and looking at verse 18 and following, I want to talk with you about some of the things that, that um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila did, not just through their, their secular work, but also as uh, specifically um, working spiritually for the Lord. So verse 18, let's read down through verse 26. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brethren and set sail for Syria and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul's intending to go back towards Antioch. Looks like he might have been intending to bring uh, Priscilla and Aquila with him on return from his second missionary journey. Verse 19 says that they came to Ephesus and he left them there. That is Priscilla and Aquila who have left Corinth to go with him. And now he's leaving behind in Ephesus while he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus or from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, kind of working his way back towards Ephesus by land. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Aquila and Priscilla, they go from Rome to Corinth, from Corinth to Ephesus, and it's at Ephesus that they meet Apollos. Ultimately, we come to find out that they'll go back to Rome eventually, perhaps when the coast is clear for them to do that. But what I absolutely love is the fact that they will pick up and move wherever they think they can be useful for God's cause, kind of like that couple who's moved overseas. This is something that they can do, and so they do it, and they're not afraid to do it. They might have had ties in some of those places, but those ties don't hold them. They go where they are needed. They have their earthly tent pegs dug in shallow because they're aiming for the kingdom. What I especially love about Aquila and Priscilla is that as far as we can tell, they're just ordinary people. Um, this isn't a full-time evangelist and his wife, though may I please encourage you to see evangelists as just ordinary people too. But they're, they're not a full-time evangelist and his wife. They're just full-time Christians. They're full-time Christians. And when they meet Apollos, and they see that there's a need to help this man understand the gospel more completely, 
Even though he is scholarly, even though he is eloquent, even though that task may have seemed a bit intimidating, they're not too intimidated to speak to him. And just a couple of things about that. Eloquence is a great tool if you has it. Um, when a person can speak well, when they can convey ideas that they have in their minds into the minds of others, that's an extremely valuable gift. But sometimes eloquence can sway us to where we choose eloquence over substance, sometimes. That's not the case with Apollos. Apollos is not only eloquent, he's also competent with the scriptures. This seems to be a very well-educated, scholarly, godly, capable man. And that goes well uh, with him being from Alexandria. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the library at Alexandria. One of the greatest repositories of wisdom of the ages that the world has ever known. So when it says he's an Alexandrian by birth, that tells you he's raised in a very scholarly culture. And he's taken from it. He's an eloquent man, and, but he has directed that eloquence and that knowledge and that wisdom in, in the right direction. He's competent in the word of God. So he's taken his physical education, his physical abilities, and used them for the sake of the Lord, just as Aquila and Priscilla have. He's been teaching accurately about Jesus up to this particular point, to the, to the baptism of John. That's as far as he knows. So he's eloquent, he's competent, he is by and large accurate, he is fervent, verse 25 talks about, most likely has a very educated background. But the point of all of this isn't Apollos. What I want you to appreciate is we've got a couple of tent makers from Corinth who have the courage to confront this man. Because he's not teaching properly the baptism of Jesus. There's a part that he doesn't understand. There's, there's a gap in his knowledge. All he knows is the baptism of John. And so it says they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So you think about having perhaps, this isn't an um, apples to apples illustration, but think about having some, some well-known, highly respected evangelist that comes in he, we invite him to speak for us, and, and everybody's here, and everybody loves to get to hear this man preach. But he says something that's not accurate from the scriptures. Um, not intentional or anything like that, but he, he, he speaks incorrectly about a passage. What would you do? Would we default to leaving that to the elders to handle? I'm confident they would. Would we default to that? The elders will take care of that. The evangelists will take care of that. I love the fact that Aquila and Priscilla say it's our job. We heard it. We can help him. We're going to act. And despite who he is, despite the eloquence and the education, they're not afraid to confront him. Truth is more important than eloquence, more important than scholarship, more important than, than perhaps reputation. And so they go to him. And even the way in which they do so is, is something that's important to notice. It says they took him aside and taught him. Sometimes we can have a, a confrontational nature about us. Um, and instead of contending for the faith, we become contentious with the faith. So you hear somebody say something and you want to correct them. And we've got this, this entire culture defined by the words, well, actually... And we kind of want to correct them and sometimes maybe even do so publicly. And let's set the record straight. Or maybe sometimes we take the person as soon as they're done. 
and, and start to talk to them. Don't give them a minute to decompress from the lesson that they were just teaching, all the nerves that they were feeling, any sort of sympathy for them. Just, we've got to fix this. We've got to fix it right now. Now, I'm not saying that because anybody here has ever done that to me. Um, frankly, I, I kind of thought as I preached more that I would have that happen more, that I would have people confront me about things and perhaps not handle it well. What's actually reinforced this reality to me is that as the years have gone by, there's been more and more times where I haven't handled it well. Where I've disagreed with somebody and haven't handled it with the tact and love that I should have. And remember, this person's a child of God. I care about this person. I love this person. Maybe they're irritating me at the moment, but I'm supposed to love them. And I lose sight of that for a little while and snap or something like that at them. Um, a lot of times I've had folks come up to me and, and, and been very kind about it. I was, may I offer a suggestion to you? May I offer you a criticism? Or did I hear you right when you said such and such? And oftentimes I'm horrified at, at what was repeated back to me because I, 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 didn't, I didn't know how somebody got that idea and that's absolutely not what I meant to say. And everything's set right, right there because of their patience. And it's an approach like that as opposed to, you know, I heard what you said last Sunday and I've got this list of passages I've been chewing on all week to, to fix what you taught, that sort of thing. It makes a tremendous difference how we approach people. It makes all the difference in the world. So rather than being confrontational, rather than being argumentative from the beginning, here is a couple who comes to Apollos and it says they took him aside and they taught him. They don't embarrass him. They remove him from that potential pressure of that sort of situation and they help him because they obviously love him. Back to what we said a moment ago about Priscilla and Aquila, what confidence they have in the scriptures. They step up to the plate. They know what the Bible teaches because they know their scriptures. They know what their Lord has taught. They know what they've learned from the apostles. And, and it's such a demonstration of what God intends to be the equality of believers in the body of Christ. This is a kingdom of priests. We all get to wear that remarkable designation. There aren't any high priests and low priests, except for, of course, the one high priest. So we can go to each other in love and sensitive consideration and help each other serve God better. And Aquila and Priscilla are a great example for how to do that. You have this wonderful Christian couple who sees this Christian who, who needs to be taught more, this, in, this believer in Jesus who needs to be taught better. And rather than waiting for someone else to do it, they know they can do it. And so they step up. And then finally, um, in Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, Paul's closing out that letter there. And he's sending all these greetings to a variety of different people, as he typically does towards the end of his letters. Um, and we find out there that this couple has eventually made their way back to Rome. So he says in verse 3, Greet, and the name's slightly different here, Prisca, just a shortened version of Priscilla, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, towards the end of that letter, he says the same thing. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. 
At the end of 2 Timothy, in chapter 4 and verse 19, when Paul's at the end of his life and his imprisonment looks as if it's only going to be ended by his departure from this world, two of the people he wants greetings sent to are Priscilla and Aquila. These people have filled his life with encouragement and edification. You see the kind of people that they are. They are encouragers. So when Paul needs them, when Paul thinks about great people who can do the work, when Paul needs to leave someone behind to start doing the work so that he can go and take care of some things and then get back to it and preach, he knows that he can trust and count on Aquila and Priscilla. They do their work. Whether Paul is there or not, as a matter of fact, they get about the work. They're what they can do for him because of what they can do for the Lord. And Paul, as evidenced by these passages, is obviously quite frequently mindful of them and what they've meant to him and what they've meant to the cause of Christ. I hope very much that you have people like that in your life who are constant encouragers, Christians who are constantly encouraging you spiritually. Maybe it is as, as it would have been for them, you know, once Priscilla and Aquila are in Rome and Paul's are all around, you know, they don't have email, they don't have text messages, phone calls, things like that. So they're not keeping in touch weekly, monthly, even yearly. I don't know. But I hope you have people that regardless of how often you actually get to contact them, that they're on your minds. Just the memory of them lifts your spirits and builds you up. The people who have made a difference because they've taken the time to encourage you in the teaching And work for the Lord that you do. It's wonderful when you have Christians who are those kinds of examples for you. Those fellow laborers for you. What is just as critical. Is that you and I endeavor to be those kinds of people. To be the Aquilas and Priscillas for our brethren. That when they're in a down time and they're thinking about the people that they love. As Paul would have been there in prison and thinking about these people that he wants to greet. Well, and Priscilla are, minds that come, are names that come to mind. They encourage him. They, they edify him. As I said, I love the correction that they offer readily to Apollos. They don't wait around for somebody else to do it. They think it's their job. It's not somebody else's. They can do it. And when they hear Apollos teaching incorrectly, they don't just pack up and leave and go somewhere else because Apollos is there and they, they can't live with him because he doesn't teach accurately. They don't get angry at Apollos and start talking about it with other people. And can you believe what he said while doing absolutely nothing to help this brother? Instead, they do what they do because they're edifiers. They seek to build him up, not tear him down. Undoubtedly, because they're encouragers and edifiers, that's the reason the church meets in their home. The church is there because they can serve that purpose, and so they do. Um... Maybe some of you, I know one of our families did this for a little while before we were able to meet again, uh, all together again, have offered your homes for Christians to come and, and meet in. If you've ever done that for any length of time, you know it's not easy to have a church meet in your home every week. So if you've ever had to get your house ready for a potluck, particularly if you've got kids, you know what's involved in all of that. So imagine doing it every single weekend. And then more often, if you're meeting more frequently than just that, you've always got to be there and ready to go. Vacation becomes a big deal. Because if if your home's not available, where's the church going to meet? You've got to set that up. Maybe you've got a congregation that's ready for those kinds of things. Several families that are happy to fill in. Maybe you don't. 
Because you don't have a lot of, of Christian families that have developed into Priscilla's and Aquila's yet. You've always got to make sure everything's ready. The toilet paper's stocked. You've got to make sure everyone has a place to park. It's not just an effortless thing. And yet everywhere you see this couple going, these full-time Christians, they are right there, oftentimes with a church meeting in their homes, in their home in Ephesus, in their home in Rome. Because they can do it. And since they can do it, it's their job. And since it's something that needed to be done and they could do it, they stepped up and just simply did. Every congregation, including this one right here at Park Road, needs Aquilas and Priscillas. We have Aquilas and Priscillas, but we need more. People who, who sell out for the Lord, commit themselves fully to the Lord, to the kind of heart that you see in this couple. It's my suspicion that if you ask them what they're doing, that they would have just simply said something to the effect of, we're doing our job. This is what God has called us to do. This is what we can do. We're fulfilling our ministry. You may never preach the gospel from the pulpit full time. But your service to the Lord will lack in nothing if you can emulate Aquila and Priscilla. And I will tell you, you can imitate Aquila and Priscilla in ways that prove to be more helpful to congregations sometimes than even the work that an evangelist or what have you may do. I love how these people are held up as, as examples because that's exactly who they ought to be for everyone. Uh, an evangelist, a shepherd, they're a Christian who serves in that way. So all of us are full-time Christians first. Following their example is, is, is the right way to start. And may God help us to be more like them for him. The first step toward being godly the way that Priscilla and Aquila were is to be what they were in Christ. To be in Christ. So if there is something that we can help you do this morning to put on Christ, if you've never become a child of God, if you've never been a disciple of Jesus then if the songs about service that we've sung this morning, if the supper that was taken today and reminded us of the sacrifice of our Lord, and the prayers that we've prayed have moved you to a deeper consideration of where you are in your life, perhaps you're not sure exactly what step to take next. Let's study about that. Let's talk about that. You need only ask. We'd be quite glad to share with you what the Bible says one must do to become a disciple of Jesus. If you know what the Bible says about becoming a Christian and you're ready to do that, you believe the good news that Jesus Christ is king and you're willing to confess your faith in him, put your sins away and be baptized into him this morning and, and appeal to Jesus for your sins to be washed away and make him the Lord of your life and become that full-time Christian from this day forward, we would love to baptize you into Christ. If today is that day for you, we'd encourage you to do that right now while we stand and sing.